Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He was a player at Redeemer and helped them win their first Division One medal. He's a two-time academic All-Canadian and a several-time OCAA All-Star every year he played. Uh, he went on to coach at Redeemer, where he's won Coach of the Year and a three-time medalist. He's been with Team Ontario, and he was also an assistant with McMaster and was just recently named the head coach of McMaster. Please welcome to the show, Brad Dowis. Brad, thanks for doing this, man. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. I feel like Appreciate we're getting up there. Oh, sorry to cut you off there. I feel like we're getting up there in age where a lot of the athletes you're working with at Mac or Timo, they probably don't remember you as a player. So I just want to start there and just celebrate your playing career and just go into it. But uh, before we get to Redeemer, just let me know, where did you grow up and what other sports were you playing? Um, so I grew up in a couple of small towns, kind of southwest Ontario. Uh, I started started my life in Jarvis, Ontario, and then moved to, to Simcoe, um, which is a small town near Lake Erie. So being from a small town, we didn't have we didn't have club volleyball. That wasn't an option. Like club volleyball was an hour away, and and my parents weren't doing that. Um, so I grew up uh, playing uh, baseball and basketball. Those are my two games: baseball in the summer and then basketball in the winter time. When you focused on volleyball, was it because you had a really good like high school coach, or when did you feel like you got hooked on volleyball? Because obviously, you could play baseball a lot longer, a lot more locally, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I started playing volleyball. Uh, I guess semi seriously in grade ten uh, when my a, when my high school coach uh, got us started there. So that was Nathan Siebinger in grade ten, and then grade eleven and grade twelve at uh, HDCH, uh, Justin Cook was my head coach there. And honestly, I was playing club club baseball and club basketball all through high school. Um, volleyball was just a high school thing for me. Yeah, and I was looking to play post secondary basketball. Um, that was kind of my that was yeah I guess that was my path basically until grade 12 and then um, started thinking about playing volleyball and just so happened that Nathan Stevengo was also the head coach at Redeemer and we had a pretty good connection uh, obviously uh, at HCPH so yeah I went through the recruiting process there and um, yeah Nathan convinced me convinced me to attend Redeemer and play there um, and ended up being a pretty good decision I'd say. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely worked out. But if you had to think about it, what made you kind of drift away from basketball? Maybe you weren't getting the offers you got wanted. Maybe you felt like you were improving in volleyball. Like if you had to think as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid, what was the the, the deal breaker, I guess? Yeah, I think for me in baseball and basketball, I kind of reached my peak. Or like in baseball, like pitching got too fast for me as a hitter. Uh, And I knew that that my time playing ball was done there. Uh, And same for basketball, like the level got level got I think too yeah too high for me um where volleyball I was still kind of coming into my own and I had a lot of I yeah I, I had some good success in high school and I was still developing and I knew that there was opportunities to keep getting better through my university career now obviously you had a relationship with the coach did anything else stand out to you about going to Redeemer like I think it's uh it's a small school but I think that there's a great community there they they love sport like what stood out to you about the visit where you're like yeah this is the spot for me yeah, I think any anytime you talk to anyone from Redeemer, you'll hear about the community, the the sense of home, right? Um, so I don't remember that being a big a big deal for me when I was when I was making my decision. And I think the opportunity to play volleyball there was a big part of it. Um, and it, it being close to my high school, like just down the road, I felt like it was a comfortable place for me. And at that time in my life, I was looking for something comfortable and something familiar where I could where I could do school and also do sports. So, Nice. And what was your first impression of the OCAA? Like, did you feel like you could come in out of high school and play at the high level? Or was that first semester a little bit of a, a wake-up call? Yeah, you're jogging my memory here. Um, I, rem- I remember being out of my element early. Um, I knew that I had, or I, I definitely had work to do um, in my first year. And, and I definitely spent a lot of time in the weight room and a lot of time working hard in practice. And in my first year, I would say my grades suffered because of it. Um, academics didn't go so well in year one because I was really focused on getting uh, getting more competitive on the volleyball court. Um, and we had a great team. Like we had a good team that year. We I think we we finished fourth in the OCAA. But we lost the bronze medal match uh, in, in five sets to Fanshawe. But there was a good group of seniors there, and um, myself and Ryan Talsma uh, came in as first years and were able to contribute a little bit there. Um, but I was. I was definitely working hard to make sure that I could contribute to that, that team. 
Now, as you look back, obviously, like your coach, and obviously, uh, I think academics are a big part of post-secondary, but I'm, I'm curious, mm-hmm. when you figured it out as a student-athlete first, how did you get your grades under order? Because I imagine you were still in the weight room, still getting extra reps before and after mm-hmm. practice, but like, what did you do to kind of turn around the grades thing? Because you were an academic All-Canadian, right? Yeah, yeah, I finished, I, I think it was a three-time academic All-Canadian there at Redeemer. Um, yeah, it kind of turned around in second year when I realized, and I just had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with, with uh, Nathan, we recalled a, a conversation we had where I figured out that when I did well in school, um, Redeemer had some automatic academic scholarship. So doing well in school as equal money. Uh, and as an 18, 19-year-old, that was pretty helpful. So I could either work work extra hard in the summer to make some funds, or I could just do the work that was in front of me in school and yeah, and, and make some money there. So uh, it was honestly just just a motivation thing and just, just flipping the switch and, and understanding that I could, like this could be something that actually was financially uh, beneficial to me. Now I'm trying to get my, my timeline correct. There was a year Redeemer hosted in the late 2000s, like maybe 2008, 2009. Were you on that squad? Because I think that really did the school justice in terms of like watching on the live stream or anyone who was lucky enough to see it in person, just how bananas that gym was. I must've been standing room only. Yeah, that was an amazing event. That was 2010. That was my fourth year. Um, so again, we had a we had a solid, a really solid team that year. Um, uh, Redeemer Redeemer's AD put in the bid to host. And you've been in Redeemer, you know that that gym is pretty small and the roof is pretty low. So men's volleyball in there can get it pretty wild. And and that place was packed. I mean, they they brought in some extra bleachers, put them on the opposite side where. The, uh, the teams typically sit. There were fans on either side. And yeah, you're right, standing room only. Um, that environment that weekend was, was pretty wild. Yeah, and then we were able to, we lost a, a, a tough one in the semifinals. Um, we were rolling in set one and then ended up, yeah, things kind of things went sideways for us and we lost 3-1 to a good Seneca team at the time. Um, and then we were able to bounce back and and we played Mohawk in the bronze medal match. And um, the Mohawk Redeemer rivalry is, is a pretty good one. Both teams coming from Hamilton. So the, the place was packed. And uh, yeah, the fans showed up for sure. And that environment was incredible. Anyone that was there that weekend will know that. Yeah, that's what's funny about it is I think a lot of people would say, okay, if that tournament wasn't in Redeemer, maybe they don't do as well. But then again, looking at the records, uh, you guys played in the final the very next year. So obviously you had a very solid team. Uh, do you remember the following mm-hmm. season? Who hosted the Elite Eight uh, in the 10-11 year? Yeah, the following season was, was hosted at Seneca. And we actually, we our, our year that year wasn't as great. But that was my first year as an assistant coach. And we, we struggled through the season. Um, got into the final eight and we ended up losing the gold medal match. And at the end of it, our record was 500. I think <laughs> you look at our whole season, but we finished second. Like, we had a good run. We went on a run at the, at the right time. And uh, yeah, we're able to come home with silver that year. Did you go through Mohawk in the semi? Yeah, we went through, I'm just recalling it. We, we beat Sheridan. We knocked out Sheridan, who was the number one seed in the quarterfinal. Um, and then we, we knocked off Mohawk in the semifinal. Yeah. Is that a pretty good feeling? Because I feel like that year they had Scapanello and a couple other guys. Like they, they were pretty strong that year, I think. They were pretty strong that year for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a wild run. It was a crazy weekend where, where we played two really great matches and then, and then ran out of gas in the final, but it was, it was a good weekend for sure. Uh, now, Obviously, it's been a natural progression, and obviously, you're doing very well at it as a coach. But I'm curious, when you wanted to shift from player to coach, was that something you decided at a pretty young age? Was that something you decided while at Redeemer? Like, what made you want to switch roles and still stay involved and get into coaching? Yeah, I mean, coaching definitely wasn't part of my my initial path. Um, when I got into university, I had the idea of being a sports psychologist. That's kind of how things started for me. Um, and then by the time I graduated, I was going to take a break and step away. Um, but my coaches at the time, uh, Wayne Harris and Nate Stevenga, um, they encouraged me to come back and, and be an assistant coach in, in 2010, 2011. Uh, and that's when I really started to like to fall in love with it. Um, I'm, I'm a competitive guy. I enjoy, I enjoy the competition and I started to like, understand and see more of the or more of a tactical 
uh, view of the game. Um, I kind of developed that through my time, my, my few years as an assistant coach working with uh, Wayne Harris. But yeah, I, it wasn't part of my plan as a as a student athlete. Um, but I very quickly fell in love with it when when I did uh, get started after graduation. So thankful to those guys for for dragging me along and encouraging me to coach and and keeping me on the bench. Did you have any uh, challenges going from a player on the team to coach right away? Because obviously the the relationship changes with a few guys. I'm wondering how you navigated mm-hmm. that because it is it is different being on the coaching staff than one of the guys, right? For sure. Yeah, that re- those relationships are different. And through my coaching, through my years of coaching, we've actually had a number of different student athletes who, who graduate and then they join on as an assistant coach. And and going through that process myself, I'm able. I felt like I was able to kind of help them through and the nuances of that, right? Like, um, yeah, like you have friendships on the team, right? So you need to be you need to be mindful of those, and you have conversations with people. Sometimes you're you're still friends, you still hang out in in different spots. So you, you have to be mindful of the conversations you're having when you're not in a team setting. Um, and honestly, I think it helps to to start working with the new athletes as opposed to the athletes that you've been playing with or competing with. So you're an assistant coach who has just graduated, like start working with the first years and maybe the second years as opposed to working with the third and fourth years. And when did you start to get hooked? Like, obviously you, you probably enjoyed it from the start, but uh, when did Wayne leave? And, and obviously like, did you throw your name in right away? Did they approach you? Like, I feel like it wasn't very long until yeah. you were in the first chair, right? Yeah. I was an assistant coach with Wayne for three years in, in 2013. Um, yeah, 2013. I was I was given the program. Um, Wayne decided to step away, and and um, him and along with our athletic director at the time, Dave Mantle, uh, made a decision to to let me run with it. And Dave was a big supporter of mine. Um, like Dave mentored me and and guided me like crazy. And I definitely owe a lot of my development as a person and as a coach uh, to Dave. Um, yeah. And, He's, he's tough for me to talk about because he was such a big part of my life and um, he passed away a couple of years ago which was really challenging um, yeah I, like Dave's Dave's trust in me at a young age uh, and his abilities to support me uh, as I developed as a coach is something I'm forever grateful for now if you had to look back uh just being a young coach and having mentors uh, around you like Dave and Wayne and, and some other people I'm mm-hmm. sure what stood out to you as something that was really supportable? Was it just uh, talking the game? Was it somebody to maybe vent about that, you know, that's, this drill didn't work or this, play, this player is just mm-hmm. grinding my gears? Or or what are some things that maybe young coaches should pursue a mentor because the, the benefit is this? Yeah, I mean, I think for Dave, like Dave was a soccer coach and, and he was an athletic leader and, and he was big on developing people. Um, so Dave and I rarely talked about volleyball. Um, Dave trusted that I'd do the game and uh, encouraged me to pursue my own my own learning in the game. But uh, we often talked about how to develop people and how to create an environment that, that's positive for student athletes, uh, knowing that that's such an important time in their life. Um, and that's something that's stuck with me forever. It's, I think post-secondary sport is about, obviously there's a competition or there's a, a competitive piece to it. Um, but the developing people and um, being a really positive influence on as, as many student-athletes as possible is really important. So Dave and I talked about that a lot. Um, yeah, and that's something that that is a big part of my current coaching philosophy and why I do what I do and why I love what I do. And then Wayne and I, Wayne and I would talk volleyball all the time. Um, our third our third year coaching together, we both lived in Kitchener, so we, we drove together. Uh, Wayne was great. He gave me a ride everywhere. Um, so we would talk we would talk volleyball a lot. We had a lot of time in the car together to talk about the team and talk about things. And um, I have some pretty great memories of going with Wayne to different conferences and um, yeah, just, just spending time talking, talking volleyball and, um, and how to do it better. So. A cool experience must've been when Wayne takes over the Conestoga gig and you get to coach against them. Like, did you feel like there was a rivalry? Did you want that one more than others? Or did you feel like it was just another game? And, you know, it wasn't about you guys. It was about uh, Redeemer versus Conestoga. Like, how did it feel when he was at uh, another program? Yeah. I mean, I have a ton of respect for Wayne, right? So that was a special moment. And I'm not sure if the year that 
he took over, we played at Conestoga first or we played at Redeemer first. But his first game back in the Redeemer gym, there was a little ceremony for him and the department gifted him, gifted him something for his years of service. And uh, that was a special night. And um, yeah, that's one I remember for sure. And then for years, um, when we coached against each other, it was always post-game, we would get together. Um, yeah, post-game, we'd get together after afterwards and, and have a couple drinks and share some stories and reminisce. And um, yeah, loser, the rule was loser buys. And I think I think he paid for more than I did. So, <laughs> um, But I mean, yeah, ton of respect for him. And, and those were always special games, for sure. Those were always special games. Another cool experience you got to do was uh, you took on both programs. So what was the opportunity to take the women's program on? And did you ever think like, how am I going to be in two places at once? Because obviously you got pregame, you got postgame, they play back-to-backs. Uh, you're probably in the gym for like four and a half straight hours because you're coaching both programs. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, obviously mm-hmm. it's exciting and I'm sure you were flattered by the offer. But when you put the time together, like, how did you make that work? Josh, that's a great question. Um like looking back, it, that was crazy. It was it was a lot. So I'll start. We I started that in 2014 um, in the fall, and my wife and I got married in the spring of 2014. Um, so I was newly married and taking on uh, coaching coaching two programs. Um, so April, my wife has been incredibly supportive from day one. Um, yeah, I can't thank her enough for for all the support that she's given me um, to get us to this point. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's been a journey. It's been since, since then. We're we've almost been married for ten years, and um, yeah, I, I like to talk with like everything that we do, uh, we do together, right? So, so any any achievements either of us have, like those are those are team achievements, and and. Yeah, she's definitely supported me a huge amount through my through the coaching journey. Um, so yeah, doing that like honestly, Josh, like 2014, I started that a couple years before was when I knew I wanted to take coaching seriously. So when when that opportunity came up, um, it was a bit of a no brainer. Um, honestly, it was it was an opportunity to be in the game a little bit more to to coach and train a bit of a different style of game. Um, just be around more athletes and, and, and yeah, try to try to figure out how to work with, with more athletes, right? Like athletes are very different. So the more athletes that you have experience with, you, you start to figure them out and you figure out what makes certain athletes tick and, and what doesn't work. And uh, I mean, I got to, I got to try a lot of different things in the gym and a lot of different things with our team, um, both volleyball wise and like um, personal development wise and like, creating team values, values and all of those things. So, um, yeah, those years, they were busy, um, but I think they accelerated my learning as a coach. Uh, yeah, and that's something that I, I wouldn't do again, or I, or I would do again. Sorry, I, would, I wouldn't <laughs> turn down. Like, I would, um, you can edit that out. Um, yeah. Now, with your coaching philosophy and the way you like to run a program, did any of it get tested? And believe me, I, I love the sport of volleyball. Mm-hmm. I think the it, it is unique that the the men and women compete at the highest level. I think the sport is similar, but I also think at the purest level, men and women are different, and I think you got to coach them differently mm-hmm. sometimes too. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's more the same than it is different, but did anything get tested or challenged with your philosophy? Did you find you were doing things different with the men's program and the women's program, or was it very, very similar in your eyes? I would say things were fairly similar. Um, I, I honestly think I, I received more buying from the women's team at times with some of the things we were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty big on trying to create a culture where the team is together and they're supportive and um, we're in a, a training environment where we're, we're taking risks and we're trying new things and we're experimenting and stuff like that. And, and there were a few years where the women's team was really bought into that at Redeemer. And there were a couple of years where that was a bit of a struggle with some of the, some of the uh, guys on the men's team. Um, and I would say that it was pretty early in my coaching career. And that was actually a positive thing for me. Right. Um, Cause that taught me that not everyone's going to buy into everything that we're saying. Right. Uh, it, it can't just be, coach says this, everyone needs to buy in or else, right? Um, so that actually led to a lot of a lot of different conversations with students, uh, student athletes, and um, 
yeah, I learned a little bit more about like building relationships with them and, and trying to have conversations with them about these bigger picture ideas and things that they might, that might be new to them. Um, yeah. Can you give me uh, an example of how you navigate that? Because I think growth mindset is amazing. I've bought in. Sometimes it's practical. Sometimes it's not. But like uh, even myself working with what I would consider high performers, national team athletes, I've had guys straight up tell me, do you want me to win the drill or do you want me to work on what we're working on? And I was like, why can't it be the same? And they're like, it's not the same. Do you want me to win the drill or you want me to make mistakes doing this? And I'm like, it's so fascinating to like high performers. They don't like making mistakes, even though logically they know they need to do this to get better. Right. So working with uh, the high performers you do, how do you bear like get down that? Do you like uh, Pat Johnson is a great example where like they do tutors or they do learning sessions of practice and then they know when there's a scoreboard like you switch it on. Like uh, I'm wondering maybe how you've navigated this because the growth mindset it definitely gets tested with athletes who don't want to be bad at something, right? For sure. And this was this was some of the early struggles with a couple of the athletes, um, like the ability to, to try and risk risk something in a match that might cost you a point. Like is that okay? And like I'm in like I'm, I'm supportive like try try something new and some athletes just really struggle to uh, like even wrap their head around that idea right like let me just do what I'm good at and not I don't need to I don't need to change things like this is working for me um and yeah I would I would as a coach I would see like it's working right now but it's going to be stopped right so we need something different and and some athletes would struggle with that but um yeah, so to answer your question, I think um, Pat's, Pat's in a good place there, right? I think they're like naming your drills or like letting athletes know this is a this is a, a drill where you're experimenting and you're trying new things and you're trying to find out some, some new stuff and you're working on things. And then there's here's the competitive drill, right? Um, and now now it's time to compete. And I think one of the easy ways as a coach you can layer on trying the new things in a competitive drill is just by adding additional bonus points. Right. So it's, we're competing, but if you do the thing that you were just working on, you actually score more. So there's a little bit of an incentive to try it there. Um, and then people who are really competitive will, will either try that new thing to score additional points or they'll just try to do what they're, they're currently doing more often. Um, yeah, they're just trying to find ways in your practice environment to, to create incentives to test new things, whether that's a new system or a new, a new strategy. Um, or a new technique. Did you ever feel like that got tested as a coach? Like, I don't know, I'll make up an example. Maybe you're down 21, 19, and in transition, your setter wants to run a back quick where you know if you just would have slung it out to your wing hitter, it's probably 21, 20, and you're in one, and now it's 22, 19 mm -hmm. because you, you risked something that was going to pay off later, but it didn't pay off now. Like, how do you respond to that as a coach? Because if, if you're preaching growth mindset, but then getting on people when they try something radical or try something new, uh, it, it doesn't build trust with the athlete, right? hundred percent. Like as a coach, you need to be consistent, right? So if that's your message and, and they execute that according to that message, you have to, your feedback has to be consistent with the current message. That makes sense. Right. Um, but I'll tell you like my competitiveness would, would struggle with that for sure. Like that moment, like, what, why are we trying that right now? Really? Um, so there's, yeah. And then you kind of got to check yourself and identify, okay, I understand why that decision was made. They're trying something to do or, um, yeah, they're, they're trying to be creative, which is something that I encourage. Right. Um, yeah, there's this, there's this fine line, right? Like with, between being creative and like, and we, we talk about it here in math, like being reckless, right? Like you can be aggressive, but you can't be reckless. Right. And if you get to that point where your your creativity is just too outrageous, then that's gonna that's gonna end up costing the team. So um, yeah, I think as a coach your your messaging and your feedback have to be in line with each other. If you're preaching if you're preaching creativity and then you're and then you're um, talking negatively about it, you're criticizing an athlete when they're creative because it wasn't the right time to be creative, that's the whole nother that's the whole nother thing. That's mixed messaging for athletes and that's gonna be frustrating for them. No, I'm sure reckless is a moving target because as the athlete improves, maybe they can do something three out of 10 when they start, then they get to six out of 10 and they stay there a while. Maybe they can get it to eight out of 10. Like I've heard Reed pretty speak and obviously 
volleyball is a sport where the more skilled you get, the risk gets eliminated. So maybe we've all coached like 14 new boys and they all want to spin serve where that's like risky and kind of silly where if we would actually invest in the skill, they would get better and the skill would take over and it becomes less risky. So uh, a long-winded way of saying in the Mac gym uh, with the athletes you were working with, how do you balance what's maybe reckless in preseason? And then how do you tighten up when games start to matter? And then when do you actually like start to build and layer that? So maybe it's not identified as reckless, maybe six weeks down the line, eight weeks down the line. Yeah, that's a great question, Josh. I think um, like when we get started in September with everyone, right, I think we're going to have really clear uh, segments of the season where we all have really clear goals. Right, with the ultimate goal being in March, right? So we know what we're doing in September is has the lens of how is this going to help us in February and March when we get into playoff time, right? Um, so definitely having having kind of that long vision is helpful. Um, and and yeah, again, like letting athletes know, okay, now's the time of the year where we can be, where we're trying to be creative, where we're we're trying to be aggressive, we're trying to be creative, we're, we're trying new things. Right. And that might be uncomfortable for you. Um, and then hopefully getting athletes to buy into the fact that that may cost us in September, October, but it's going to benefit us in, in February and March. Right. Um, so again, try, I think being, being clear and transparent with the athletes, is really going to be important. Uh, making sure that they have a good understanding of what we're trying to do, what our, what our vision is, what our style is. Um, and then the building blocks that happened September, October, November through the season to get us to that point. And how did the opportunity for Mac come up? I'd love to dive down the, the coaching rabbit hole, mm-hmm. but I just want to set it up for the listeners, uh, how you transitioned from going from coaching both programs and then focusing on the men. And then you end up uh, at McMaster, uh, on the men's volleyball staff. I'm just curious, how did that uh, progression happen? I'm trying to get my years right with COVID here. Um, but I think 2019, 2020 was my last year coaching both teams um, at McMaster. And, and that ended up being the COVID season. Um, so I actually coached my last men's volleyball match without knowing I had coached my last men's volleyball match. And then, and then after the COVID season, I stepped away from the men's program and I coached one more year uh, with the women's team in 2021, 2022. And at that same time, um, at that same time, I had the opportunity to come here and work with Coach Preston and Coach Ebbett in the men's volleyball side at Mac. So there was one year where I was doing men's volleyball at McMaster and women's volleyball at Redeemer. Um, and during that year, I was finishing up my master's as well. So that was that was a pretty chaotic year, but that was, um, yeah, it was, it was a good year of transition. And then, um, yeah, after that year, I was, I was done at Redeemer. Um, and an opportunity came up here at McMaster to work in the athletic department as one of their managers of competitive sports. Um, at the time, I didn't have a, a full-time paying job and thought it would be good to continue to support my very supportive wife and, uh, and our son at this time, our, our newborn son. Um, so I took that role as the manager of competitive sport um, and didn't coach uh, any post-secondary volleyball this past year. Um, I worked with the MAC 18U boys club team. Um, and that was my very first time ever coaching club, which was, which was a, a neat experience. Um, uh, and then this opportunity came up, applied, went through the process. Um, now here we are. Okay. I, I gotta know, you didn't get the opportunity to play club as a youth guy. You're late in your coaching career. Uh, not late. I, I imagine you got a lot of years left, but you've already done so much of the post-secondary level and now you're coaching club. What were the first impressions? Were kind of like, what do you mean we just sign up for a tournament and we don't know where we're going and we won't know where we're going until like <laughs> four weeks before it happens? Like, yeah. uh, the, the OVA does a great job. I mean, I, I love my time there and I love the people who still work there. But uh, it, it had to be wild signing up for that, being like, this is so serious, but yet so like last minute sometimes. Yeah, it was. It was. A, it was a great experience. Um, so first of all, like our club, our club president was great. He kept me very organized. Like I hardly had to worry about about any of the logistical details. I could honestly just show up and coach volleyball, which was great. Uh, we had a great parent rep, um, who took care of all of the stuff around tournaments and like hotels and meals and all that stuff. So it was honestly just an opportunity for me to continue to coach volleyball. I didn't want to have a gap. I didn't, I didn't want to take a year off. I wanted to continue to coach and it, and it, yeah, it turned out to be great. Um, the eight, 
2018 youth season was a little wonky and, and the OVA knows my feelings is about the importance of a tournament in November, early November and how that can set you up for success or failure. But, um, that's another conversation. Um, this was, it was very much, a uh, okay. We're in early November. I'm in, I'm in like growth mode, right? We're trying things. We're serving really tough and we're making errors all over the place. And that's, uh, that knocked us down to a place where I've now, I now know that you don't want to be in the OVA. You know, we worked really hard to, to get back up uh, to where we wanted to, but um, that would be a big lesson um, if I ever get back into coaching in, in club. Um, but honestly, the athletes were great. They're, they're all hungry to get recruited, right, and, and find a home in, in their post-secondary. Our, our parents were great, um, really, really supportive. Um, and yeah, the people around the club were awesome. Honestly, I could I could show up and coach ball. Uh, and we had two I had two great assistant coaches as well. Um, so there to Ben Kirkstoff and Josh Eklund, um, both Mac guys as well. So it was it was great to work with them. Yeah, we don't have to get into it, and I maybe this is a better discussion if we could ever get a panel together. But just for the listeners who are outside of Ontario for context, uh, sometimes we pull on both sides of the rope for LTAD, where there's a tournament in November, and if you finish a certain place, you'll then be in Division One, and if you finish in a different place, you'll be in Division Two, and you might say, okay, relegation uh, uh, advancement, like that, that's good for you sports, it keeps them competitive. It does, however, except when you get to Tier Two, and you basically have to win that tournament to get up. It's like as tough as VNL is once you get relegated to get back up. So we we preach LTAD, but you have to win the first tournament of the year to set yourself up for success later on, or it's probably going to take you a long time to get up there. And then it's tiered at provincials, and your ranking really matters. But again, it's about LTAD. So I, I digress, Brad. I won't put you on the spot here. We'll we'll talk about this later off air. Like I said, we'll get a panel together. But uh, we're serving a lot of masters in competitive sport and LTAD. But anyways, I digress. Uh, I do have to ask though, because I think as an outsider, a lot of us assume with the name, uh, and you just mentioned your assistant coaches being varsity athletes. Uh, is Coach Preston or Coach Ebbett involved at the club level at all? Like, did you get much say from them, or is it? It's kind of like it, it, it's a name, and obviously you want to funnel to the varsity program, but it's not. It's not a farm club for McMaster, right? That's correct. Yeah, I would say loosely affiliated. Um, I actually don't know too much of the history. Um, I know that I know that they wanted to have a, a club in Hamilton, uh, a, a quote unquote high performance club in Hamilton, and and there were some connections in the early days. I think that's that's not separated, but it's, it's loosely connected right now. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to have a, a club with, with the Mac name on it. And, um, yeah, and it's great. It's a great opportunity to have our varsity athlete coaching, right? I think that's when you're done playing, that's a great way to give back to this game and continue to stay involved. And, and then you never know what happens. So, um, but yeah, there's no official affiliation, uh, at the moment between the, the university, uh, our program and, and the Mac volleyball club. Nice. I like how it's not official, but playing in Max Gym, I see t-shirts everywhere. Uh, we mm. must have played in front of the biggest crowd uh, in our semifinal when we played Mac this year. So even though it's not directly affiliated, do you just get a sense that like the Hamilton volleyball community loves McMaster, whether it's men's or women's? Like It feels like you, you go to a game on a weekend and it, there's, there's just kids everywhere. I think it's such an awesome thing that both uh, yeah. Tim and Dave have done. Yeah, Tim and Dave have done a great job there. Like, this is a volleyball city, right? It's a volleyball town. Um, we've got a number of, of local clubs around, and um, I think we do a pretty good job with our event staff of reaching out to them and, and trying to get some tickets and get them in here. And um, we have different clubs who are doing our three-ball system on a regular basis, right? So, um, yeah, we, we hope to be able to put together an entertaining uh, product for people, right? So you bring up the family and you come and support, and... Um, and yeah, I think obviously there's, there's been a history, um, of hosting big events, whether that's national championships or long beach or Ohio state, right. It's just a big, a big ticket event that people will want to go see, right. You just don't get that opportunity to see, to see those types of events on, on a regular basis. So, uh, a huge shout out, uh, to Dave and the folks behind putting those things together and really making this a volleyball town, a volleyball city. It's really a special place to be. So on the show, we like to have fun. I like to tell stories. I like to hear stories. But uh, sometimes we got to ask the, the actual journalistic questions here. So you're following maybe one of the best, uh, not even maybe, one of the best ever do it, maybe the best ever do it in Dave Preston. And I, and I got to know, 
is there any pressure you're putting on yourself to maybe carry on the tradition or say that Dave did it this way, so I want to do it this way? Like we've had uh, Adam Schreimer on the show, and obviously he's following Benjo, who's done some great things at Trinity. And, you know, you respect tradition, but you also want to do it your way. So I'm curious, as you're building your seasonal plan and you're meeting the guys and you're getting open gyms going, do you feel a sense that you're like, this is the Dave Preston way and I love what he did and we're going to keep that going? Or you know what, this is my show and we're going to do it this way. Yeah, this is a big question. I get this question a lot. Um, yeah, obviously what Dave has built here and, and what Dave did over his 20 plus years here was incredible. Right? Um, the office is littered with memorabilia of successful seasons, whether that's championship balls, championship medals, pictures with some of the, some of the matches with the Ohio State and the Long Beach. Like you walk into the office and you have a pretty clear understanding of, of what this program has done in the past 20 years. Um, so Dave has, Dave has built something, um, yeah, quite incredible. And, and you're right. Like one of the best to ever do it for sure. One of the best, uh, in our province, one of the best in our country area in our country. Um, and yeah, so I would be silly to walk around and, and not have that in my mind. Right. Like it's a big, the big, uh, question that I get asked a lot. Um, and yeah, it's present for sure. Um, yeah, to answer your question about like how I'd like to do things, um, I think so. I've been in an environment before where someone you do comes in and kind of um, wipes the slate clean, clean and says we're going to start over. Um, and it's someone who was part of the previous environment. Now I didn't respond to that very well. Uh, what well, wasn't something I enjoyed. So I, I knew going into this that I wasn't going to come in and just and wipe things clean and say hey, we're doing this this way now. Um, that's that's not my style at all. So I'm trying to take a pretty, I would say, like patient approach to really get a sense of of what the meat and potatoes are here, what's worked well, maybe figure out where the different uh, points are where we can make adjustments um, to continue to move this thing in a in a positive direction. Um, and one of one of the things that I'm doing, uh, and Coach Ian and I are doing, is we're, we're chatting with all the players, and trying to get their feedback. Um, on things, trying to trying to get a sense of what they enjoyed, and maybe the different areas that that they can see or they would like to see change. Um, really trying to be collaborative in that approach. Um, yeah, with with Coach Ebbett, uh, with the athletes, and, and when we get everyone back in September, uh, we're really going to try and take a a collaborative approach to how we how we move this thing forward, and and we'll address the fact that that Dave's no longer here. We'll talk about that. We'll make sure we're not just going to kind of push that aside um, because, yeah, I think things will be different. Right? Um, Dave was here for a long time and um, and he did things the way that he wanted to do things and that was really, really successful. Um, so, yeah, I would be silly to come in and, and try and throw everything out and start over. I'm, I'm just trying to kind of maybe make my own or put my own touch on some things and keep this thing moving in a positive direction because we've got a lot of good momentum here. Um, there's a big thanks, big thanks to Coach Preston for all the work that he did um, to get to get this momentum built here. I'm glad you mentioned your own experience as an athlete because you're right. You don't want a clean slate. You don't want to ignore it. But I think it's not authentic. Like. I'm not Dave Preston. You're not Dave Preston. We can't do things the way Dave did. I, I'm, I've stolen lots from him, believe me. And I, I, I thank him for that all the time. But uh, I am curious, you're, you are pursuing athletes' opinions. You and Coach Ebbett are working closely. Like, how are you also like self-reflecting me? Like, you know what? These are my non-negotiables. These are my values. These are what I bring to the table, right? Because I think coaches need to identify that like, this is what Brad's really good at. And whatever team I'm coaching, whether it's a club team, whether it's Redeemer, whether it's McMaster, like, I think these are important values, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I try to be a reflective guy. I, I try to take my time and, and, and take a step back and look at what's going on here. Um, one of my big values and one of the, one of the things that I really enjoy when I'm coaching is, is to let athletes have a say in what's going on. Um, so that, that's big for me. Collaboration is big for me. Um, our, like, sitting down as a staff and, and gathering opinions and, um, from everyone on our staff, even others in the department who are supporting our programs, right? Like our strength and conditioning coach, our athletic, uh, our athletic therapist, right? Even our academic coordinator. Um, all of those people have a lot of good insights in their different areas that um, 
that I'm going to sit down and we're going to, we're going to put together a plan together. Um, we're going to use their information to put together this plan. Um, so that we all kind of own it and we're all part of it. So, um, that's a big, that's a big part of my style for sure. And then giving athletes the freedom to also have their input, um, into, yeah, into what they enjoy. At the end of the day, it's their student athlete experience. And so it's, it's gotta be an enjoyable thing for them. And, and we're going to get after the same goal, right? We all want the same thing here. Right. Um, yeah, we're just going to try and make it as, as positive an environment as possible and with, with high standards, because that's what we do at Mac. Right? We have high standards, and we're going to support these, these student athletes as, they, as we all push together to, to achieve these high standards. I, I love it. And what advice would you give to a coach when that gets tested? Because it will get tested. And for a young coach saying, that's a great philosophy, I'm going to use that 2.0. It reminds me of a story. Uh, mm-hmm. When I started coaching college, uh, Hernani Man, a great coach, told me uh, – he figured out college wasn't for him very quickly because he would do things like he believed in autonomy and athletes having say, and he would say, Hey, uh, what time are, what time's curfew tonight? Like we have a game tonight and we have a game tomorrow. What time's curfew? And the players would be like, Oh, we'll be in bed by 1am. And he's like, do you think that's the best idea for us to play well? And they dug in on 1am. He's just kind of like, Oh man, this, this, this autonomy thing just blew up in my face where that's what they decided. So he empowered them and obviously they didn't play well the next day. So, uh, it's not always going to be, you know, rainbows and unicorns and sunshine and everyone's always going to agree. So when that does get tested and you have to be the decision maker, you have to be the leader of the squad. Uh, how do you stay true to those values without being the big bully and saying, you know what, it's my way and this is how we're doing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's a couple different, a couple different layers there, right? Like it's having open and honest conversations, but knowing where, knowing where to draw the line. Right. And I think one of the things that we can do uh, well is to, is to work with our leadership team, our student athlete leadership team and, and help them uh, help guide them kind of in the right direction. At the end of the day, they'll have a lot of say over, over certain things like this. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, we have we have our standards and our behaviors that these are the non-negotiables, right? And then the athletes will hear all these at the beginning of the year, and here's our non-negotiables, right? Here's what happens when when or if these non-negotiables are are crossed, and um, yeah, and then and then we'll manage through those things. Um, but yeah, there's I I don't see a lot of value in, in in myself as a head coach coming in with an iron fist and saying these are the rules. This is this is the only way to do things. And I'm really trying, yeah, to have those have those conversations. And I mean, we I think we need to let athletes fail every now and again, right? Um, we learn from our we learn from some failures, right? It's a bit of a a bit of a, a buzzed phrase, I guess, right now. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there are times where where we can let athletes fail, and maybe there are times where we have to be a little bit more uh, a little bit more strict, I guess, quote unquote. Um, yeah, as long as we can learn and, and, and develop from them, right? So if athletes want to stay at the 1 a.m. and that's going to cost us a match in preseason, that's a little bit different than athletes staying up staying up super late before a, a provincial quarterfinal, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think... And hopefully by the time we get to provincial quarterfinal, athletes have learned, <laughs> have learned any lessons that they need to learn and, and we're pretty dialed in in our routines and how we're approaching things. I'm curious with you pursuing your master's and obviously you've coached a lot. Uh, I always ask this because mm-hmm. I'm big on coach education. Where do you stand on the theory of talent ID? And what I mean by that, like, are, are you down the rabbit hole of motor learning? Like, what do you think about block training, which seems to be like a negative term lately? Like, uh, mm-hmm. are, are you on board that, you know what, sometimes it takes like uh, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. Sometimes it might take forever to learn a new skill. Like, where are you in terms of like, you, you did your master's, so I'm sure a lot of people threw some theory at you. But when you're the one actually in the gym and that gets tested, like, where do you kind of fit on like, okay, skill acquisition, we need errors. I believe in that. I believe in growth mindset like what are some things that you believe in in your drill design and your feedback and how long to give an athlete a chance to like acquire the skill yeah um so a couple things jumped to my mind uh right away so um the first being that when we train skills um i always or as much as possible i want to add a read and a decision as much as possible right as opposed to just the contact i i believe the skill is What's the scenario, right? What's coming at me? What's the correct decision? Can I execute the skill and then and then move on? Right. So, so doing the thing that happens right before uh, a contact and then right after a contact. Does that make sense? 
um, as opposed to just training like this is the skill, this is the contact, right? Because I think there's the before and after that that stick out to me. Um, and then I think coaching is all about like putting the right uh, degree of diff- putting athletes in their in drills with the right degree of guilt difficulty so that they can continue to get better. Right? And, the, and the number that sticks in my head is a 70%. If they're being successful 70% of the time, that's probably a good space for them to be learning. Right? If they're successful 9 or 10 out of 10 times, the, the activity is probably too easy and we need to challenge them um, either with a more advanced read or something that happens a little bit faster, less time to make the read, uh, something like that. And, and the opposite side of it is if we're only getting it 3 out of 10 times, um, then we're probably feeling a little bit frustrated. Unless you're someone that's really into growth mindset and you really want to be challenged and you really you're okay with living in that three out of ten, uh, but I think most people get frustrated there. There's no learning happening there. So um, yeah, trying to find those the right degree of, degree of difficulty for activities um, in our practice, and that's like when we have big rosters, we have 22 athletes on our roster right now. But being able to adjust adjust activities in a practice um, to match to match the athlete level is, is is tricky, and that takes some planning and and that takes some coaching skill in the gym. Now, your philosophy, for lack of a better term, is a little bit more new age, and I think a lot of athletes they they come from different programs. I'm not going to get into a right or wrong discussion, but what would you say if those are some of your values and what you believe in your drill design and somebody says, can somebody just get on the serving machine and launch me a hundred balls in the next 15 minutes? Like, why can't we do that? Where you're saying like, well, there's a key read and decision I want you to make, not Mm -hmm. just the contact. So is that an opportunity to educate? Is that a, no, we're not doing that. Is there a middle ground? Like, what do you do with those situations? There's again, there's like being collaborative with athletes, right? If that's something that someone needs, absolutely. Like let's do it. Right. Um, I think there's the conversation about some education, there in, in terms of yeah, how, how motor learning science is, is progressing and the things that we know. But, but sometimes athletes just want contacts for their own confidence, right? And confidence is a big part of this game, right? So if, if someone needs to come in and pass, pass 40, 50 balls, and then let's pass 40, 50 balls, we have the equipment to do that. That doesn't take that long. And, and, and there's definitely time for that, for sure. This is, this is far too crazy. With you growing up uh, mostly as, as a baseball and basketball athlete, and believe me, it, it could have changed. I'm not actively coaching those, but uh, coming up as an athlete, those might be two of the most blocked training sports where like basketball, they just want to grab a ball and shoot uh, by themselves. Sometimes it's like there's no yeah. environmental things happening around them. So I'm curious yeah. when you came across motor learning or when you came across uh, yeah. cue reading, decision-making, were you pretty open to it or you're kind of like, no, guys, I'm an OCAA all-star. I think I know the way that I was trained. It's going to work for these guys. Yeah. No, I was, I was definitely open to it. And like, um, just yesterday I was watching my niece who's not on play uh, softball or play fast pitch. Uh, and it was painful. Like <laughs> the game is like the amount of, the amount of athletes there and the ones that are actually getting something meaningful is like to the hitter and the pitcher. And then every now and again, a ball gets dinked around somewhere and someone has to make a play, but then they're standing around for five or 10 minutes. And it was, it was pretty wild. Um, and then basketball, I had this discussion with some basketball, some varsity basketball players at Redeemer, actually. Um, a number of years back, they got one of the Dr. Dish shooting machines and they would put up, they would put up shots all the time, Josh, like all the time, block training, um, like the definition of block training. Um, and we looked at their team's numbers, um, basically from before they got the dish to the current numbers. And over those five years, there was zero difference in their free throw shooting and their three point shooting. No way. Right. So I was like, guys, like, is this thing making you better? Like five years ago, you, you shot free throws at 78%, let's say. And this year you shot free throws at 78%. Like there was no, there was no improvement. Um, yeah, it's just, I thought that was, uh, like, obviously that's a, a, a really specific example on a really specific team. And there's lots of other different factors. Um, but you think with the dish and putting up that many shots, something would, something would improve. But um, the team, the team shooting percentage was the same. Yeah. Wild. Wild. And 
I mean, I'm trying not to be stubborn, but I'm also trying to be committed to a philosophy. And I think one strike against me with athletes I work on is uh, if they're not buying into the motor learning or, or maybe I'm just not explaining that well, but I, I get accused that we play too much where I'm a big guy on like, like you said, the, the key reading, decision-making environmental factors. Obviously I focus on beach more than indoor. So it's four people in a ball. There's not that many things we can go over. So to break it into smaller groups, is, it's just not going to happen guys. So anyways, we do a lot of game sitch, but uh, I'm curious yeah. with your own education and your own belief, uh, how do you break down the situation and do you ever get accused of like you're playing too much like you're this this feels too much mm -hmm. like a game versus you know we can add emphasis you're a big bonus ball guy like you you like to do the, the teaching and learning like yeah. what, what are some things that you found that like they can feel like they're getting reps and they're just not playing for the sake of playing yeah and i think in indoor with it being six on six you can really you can adjust right so you can do you can work on a specific skill but have athletes to do the action before and after as well, right? And they're still getting reps on whatever they're working on, um, but you're doing, you're, you're making a read, you're, you're executing a skill, and then you're being prepared to do the next, right? Um, I see, like, in some teams, even teams I've coached in the past, I found that we were, they were really good at reception to, to our first attack, right? And we could, we could train that really well, but then we were really bad at setting up our block defense, right? Because we, we never really trained attack to set a block defense. Does that make sense? Um, or like, yeah, doing the next action. Um, I think that's an important piece for sure. And you can still get the reps on what you're training. Um, it's just in a, in a more game-like scenario. Do you take stats? Do you watch video? Do you work closely with your assistant coach? Like, how are you finding these little nuggets of situational play where, uh, again, to name drop my own podcast here, but mm. we had Adam Schreiber on the show and I was like, oh, you, were, you guys are a great serving team. He's just like, yeah, but we want to be a great transition team. And there's a difference. Like, mm. we weren't very good at defending high ball in the first semester. So we worked on it and we, we layered all these things where I was just like, yeah, but you guys are a great serving team. He's like, we don't want to be that. We want to be transition. And that involves how do you defend the high ball? Where does your four guy, does he go under? Does he go mm -hmm. high? Like all these different layers. And I was like, man, Schreimer, that's why you guys are so successful because you think of the game yeah. and all these details. So for you to discover these details, where are they coming? Are the video? Are they stats? Are you just like watching on the sideline being like, that's a situation that keeps burning us? Yeah, I think one of the projects this summer will be to do a deep dive into, um, into a, the stats from the previous year. Right, or the previous multiple years and see where the best teams are really successful, where we stack up, where we need to make improvements. And obviously it's very beneficial to have uh, Coach Ebbett here, right? Like he's got he's got the experience, he's been around the squad, he knows like he's got his own insights. Um, so those conversations will happen throughout the summer where we can do a deeper dive into okay, what what what's separating um, us from from being able to to get it done in March, right? Um, and I think as as time goes on, we'll pick apart more things, right? As the year goes on, we'll see what we're doing well, where we're struggling, how we're how we're doing as we work towards these benchmarks that we set out uh, before the start of the year. Is there any trick you can give a younger coach or heck even an older coach in terms of? using stats and not getting fooled by randomness. Like I think one of the greatest things that I ever heard was stats mm -hmm. and I forget actually who deserves credit for it. It might be Nathan Jansen for all I know. It might be Joe Trinzi, but just in the men's game, a dig doesn't actually hold that much value. It doesn't correlate to winning. So you could get fooled by like, Oh, look how many digs we got this set or how many we're getting per match or how many we're getting in this situation where it's like, well, the value is digs to kill or our first ball mm -hmm. side out percentage or our kill efficiency. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's other things that lead to wins, but you could look at a stat column and say, Oh, the top five teams, the nationals were all good defending teams like that might be just a random thing that's happening versus a situational kpi right mm -hmm. yeah i i think like as you dive into the stats you're trying to figure out what's scoring your points right so is it is it kills off of digs right um is it first ball side out right is it the ability to score on on your serve right whether that be an ace or does that lead to a sub block right um and maybe that's like even a deeper dive right it's but being able to serve and force the team out of system so that we can highball and triple block, right? Um, yeah, trying to trying to not be. I think volleyball stats, like there's basic stats programs out there that will give you just this these chunks of numbers, right? Um, I passed the 2.5. To me, the pass number is not something I'm super interested in. I don't I don't really care what you pass on a four point scale. I really want to know when you pass, how often do we first ball kill? 
right? Or how often do we win that point? When you serve, I'm, I'm interested to some degree on what they've asked, but I'm most interested in do we score points when you serve? That's, that's the game. And, and I've been trying to figure out if we are scoring points when you serve, why is that? Is that because of our blocking? Is that because we're making more digs and we're transitioning to kills? Is it, is it because you're scoring straight aces? Like, why, why are we point scoring when you do score or when you serve? Um, and then as a coach, can, how do you, you not get lost in the numbers? For sure, you can get lost in the numbers, or you can fall for it's a copycat league. And I was just going to say, what if I'm this huge uh, McMaster fan, and I take my OVA club team out there, and I think, we have to spin serve. That's the way it's going. But then you look down your roster, and you go, well, we don't have a Woldarski, a Cooper, a Gratton, a Rugosi. Like, all these guys are hitting spin serves. But maybe that's not actually the key to why you guys are scoring points. Maybe it's your, your ability to trap block, or your ability to transition set, or defend high ball. Like, how do you not get fooled by, okay, this is what Mac does, but I can't do that because I don't have those arms or I don't have that personnel, right? For sure. So as, a, as a coach, you need to do a little bit of an inventory on your roster, right? What are Where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? And create systems and tactics that that maximizes the things you're good at and, and prevent teams from taking advantage of your weaknesses. Um, yeah, I think we... Like I've seen that, I've seen that before, right? Like coaches, these coaching symposiums are fantastic and fantastic. And you go and you take in all these great ideas and then you try to apply them to your college team or your club team. Uh, when the folks, when the folks that are talking about them are coaching a, an international team or a pro team, right? It's like these things, are, like we can't just do that for the sake of doing it that way because you heard that at a symposium. So, um, I think trying to find the nuggets when you're listening to other coaches and, and trying to find things that you can apply to your own team that either that either play into your strengths or help help prevent teams from taking advantage of your weaknesses. Man, this has been awesome. I, I can't wait to get you back on the show after you and Ian have just locked yourselves in a room and just whiteboarded everything out and talked about all these stats and situations. But uh, we'll save that for another day. Maybe it'll be next March after we're celebrating how well Mac does. But uh, before we let you go, just one tradition we've built into the show is just to tell a funny or unique story. So we, we've set the stage for the young bucks out there. They know you were a top-tier player. Obviously, we've established that you're a top-tier coach. But something odd or funny must have happened along the way that I hope we could sh- just share a laugh before we let you go. Yeah, for sure. So uh, when you asked me about this uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I started racking my brain and um, I actually had to go back to figure out when it happened. Um, but it was actually my very first year as a head coach. Um, so I was I was a young coach and I wasn't, I guess I wasn't like overly well prepared for the situation, but we, um, we spent a Christmas break training in the lower mainland in BC um, and Redeemer being a, a good um, cheap school always had to find the, the cheapest way for us to get to these places and back home. So instead of flying from Hamilton or Toronto into Abbotsford, um, we decided that it would be better to travel to Buffalo and then fly to Seattle and then take a bus up to uh, to the lower mainland, um, which was great on the way there. We got out there, no problems. Uh, on the way back, um, we hopped on our bus, headed across the border into Seattle got to Seattle and we realized there was a huge snowstorm in Buffalo and our flights were canceled. So um, it was the end of our trip and, and we were stuck in Seattle um, for I think six days with the guys. Um, so it was myself, my assistant coach who had to leave partway through. He actually uh, got somehow to Vancouver and then flew back home to Toronto. Um, so it was myself and 13 athletes in Seattle. And we finally, we, the storm finally cleared up. We were able to get a flight from Seattle to Vegas to Buffalo and got back home uh, on the Thursday night after school started. Uh, and then one day at home and, and Saturday morning, we were off off, um, off on a bus to Windsor to play St. Clair. So that was a pretty wild time. We, we, yeah, we spent, we spent almost a full week in Seattle, like hotel, just hanging out in a hotel. We found a club to train at to get the guys doing something, but it was like they were watching movies and just hanging out. And I was there by myself, and we're trying not to spend all the school's money. And um, that was pretty wild. That was my very first, uh, very first trip uh, as a head coach in, in 2013, 2014. Pretty fun. 
I love how you top it off with a trip to Windsor, which is just like another gnarly travel day where it couldn't have been like a crosstown rival or even a home game that you just get on another bus with the guys. And, and at that time, right, like it's not a vacation because you're hoping that any day you're going to fly out, right? And there's only so many movies you can watch. There's only times you can go to Subway. That must have been like, – it's good that you can laugh about it now, but that must have been just painful. Yeah, it was It was pretty tough. Um, yeah, I think for the first couple of days, the guys were enjoying it, right? They were hanging out, they're in the rooms, watching movies and all that stuff. But you're right, like you run out of places to eat, uh, you're eating the same food, you're watching the same stuff. And 13 guys in, in, uh, yeah, in a hotel after a week of training before. So we're coming up on almost two weeks together and it's just us. And, um, yeah, I think the guys ended up getting sick of, sick of each other a little bit, but it was, it was great to get back home and, um, yeah, and one day at home and then hop on a bus for the best road trip in the, in the province. So. Amazing, amazing. Well, Brad, thank you so much yeah. for, for coming on the show and sharing all you did. And like I said, uh, I, I can't wait to see what's next and what you come up with. But uh, best of luck with everything you got going on. And uh, I'll be rooting for Mac and everything you got going on. Really appreciate it, Josh. Thanks for having me on, man.